We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 268. Our guest today has been competing and riding for over 25 years, and she is a USDF bronze, silver, and gold medalist, all of which she earned on self-trained horses. This not at all defines her, but she has been struggling with bipolar disorder since she was 12 years old. Once she quoted in an interview, I've always gravitated towards the more difficult and complicated horses because I feel like I'm kind of difficult and complicated myself. I love her perspective and her realness, especially when it comes to her and her mental illness, but also with just the realness of training and how in all of our training situations, there are highs and lows. She really does talk about the lows because they really are learning moments, and she's really able to look back on those moments and see how far her and her horses have come. For instance, one of her most famous horses, which she has really kind of created her program around, is a horse named Knight. Let's just say our guest has coined the term Knight Splosions because of this horse. Without giving too much away, there have been highs and lows in Knight's journey, but just recently, our guest was given her gold USDF medal with Knight. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Sarah Carlisle. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Bethany. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Where are you coming from right now? Where are you based? We're 20 miles northwest of Boston and Acton, Massachusetts. Okay, nice. Love it. That's nice. It's like Metro Boston. Yeah. And probably, I mean, still hot, but not not Florida hot. It's definitely (laughs) not Florida hot, but it's been like a lot in the 90s and it's, you know, a delicate flower. I don't love it. Yeah, that's up there. Absolutely. Wow. Um, Well, I'm so excited to talk with you. I would love to hear about how you first kind of got started in the equestrian industry. So when I was four, we moved across the street from just like a little backyard barn and I started riding there. And then When I was eight, the barn came up for sale and my mom is an avid conservationist and it was going to become housing developments. Mm. So she bought the barn with like, I don't come from a horse family. My mom's a CPA and my dad's a consultant. So um, they bought the barn and we kind of just learned as we went and all of our horses in the beginning for like a decade were just things we got at the livestock auction in the town over. Wow. And so I started on just like naughty little ponies. And then um, I evented until I was 18. And then I begrudgingly switched to dressage because my trainer at the time switched to dressage. So I was like forced out of eventing. Oh, wow. And um, the first horse I showed dressage was my off the track thoroughbred finders keepers or key. And he was wonderful. And so I've been kind of riding the underdogs my whole life. You have a passion, it seems, for working with horses that have behavior issues. And I'm willing to take a guess that your horse, Knight, might have inspired this passion. I've heard you call uh, certain moves called Knight Explosions. So yeah. <laughs> tell me a little bit about how Knight ended up in your life and, and a little bit of that story. 
So I've always worked with horses with behavioral issues. I think probably just because I started on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, my first client that I ever had was this wonderful woman named Laureen who would pull horses off the slaughter truck. And then she'd give them to me to back and break and restart. So I've always really liked horses with behavioral issues. And night I got seven years ago now, it'll be eight in the fall. Oh, it's eight now. Wow. That's weird. So he, his story is he started out when he was five, he got imported to be a Canadian Olympic prospect. And he, it's funny because you can see his, like his show record where he does well. And then it's like scratch, scratch, eliminated, eliminated. Mm. And then in a weird serendipitous event, um, my friend Cassie, who's this great rider in Canada, saw him at a show because he has these weird ears and she recognized him from my post and she saw him bronk off a famous cowboy that was hired to try to get him to behave no way and then he was deported back to holland and then he was re-imported and in like sad horse the dark side of the horse industry fashion he was sold as a like amateur friendly schoolmaster to this wonderful woman who was in her 70s Mm. and she quickly found out that he was really not that and then she had she offered him to we shared a trainer at the time and she offered him to a student of the trainer for a dollar he was like listed for that or he was kind of available for almost a year and I first when I heard about him I was like oh I don't know if I want to take on another project because I've had so many and then um I got him sight unseen and when he came to the barn like I didn't know what he looked like and he came off the trailer and it was night and he um, tried to throw me off every day for like six to 12 months. Wow. And his night explosions, we also have now started calling it nighting out. He really is athletic and he can move sideways and buck in a very specific manner. So uh, it took years and years of just being really patient and calm with him to get him to even just be able to do tests. My first few years, my goals were like, okay, I would love to be able to finish 50% of the tests I start. Wow. And that would be my goal going into it. And the first year, I think my goal would be like, I don't want to get thrown off in my white britches. <laughs> and I really, if I could finish one test this weekend, mm. that would be great. Cause mm-hmm. I would just have to, I would get eliminated or excuse myself constantly. Right. So then as the years progressed, we got like a kind of more better goals. And it took until he was like from 10 to 15 when he was 15 was our first show season that he was like functional and he was a good boy. And then we did really well at I one that year. And then 16 was last year. He strained a suspensory in his front leg. So he sat out. So then at 17 this year, we went to Florida and I don't know why I thought that I had a normal horse. And I like (laughs) entered after two weeks of being down there, I entered at global and we regressed slightly hmm. and um, he, I couldn't even get him down the center line the first show. Wow. So we got eliminated and then he, he did get better and he gets better. Even He's gotten so much better in his older age, but he's mm-hmm. still, you know, a little bit of a delicate snowflake. How did you initially handle him? And like, you know, obviously you didn't fully know what you were kind of getting into when you started with him. How did you initially handle the, the bucking and the, you know, inability to necessarily not make it through many tests. Yeah. 
I ride with Kathy Connolly, who's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Like she's such a good match for night because she's so kind and she's so sweet. And she always says that horses don't want to misbehave. They do it because they either don't understand or because there's something physically blocking it. So they either are in pain or they physically can't perform the movement. And I think that that's very true, but I always add my own caveat. It's I also think that they can have a conditioned fear response. Mm. So night was kind of that. And um, I think horses can also have like sensory issues, just like people and they get overwhelmed really easily. And in my experience with horses with behavioral issues, the worst thing you can do is try to like beat them through it. Mm. It's like a toddler or something. You have to just let them feel their feelings. And I like call it sharing circles. We make jokes about it all the time, but you have to just let them be upset and just tell them it's okay and not react, which is hard and is tough. But so for the first few years, like even still when he's upset, I can't really do anything. I just pat him and tell him it's okay. And then he, he gets over it. Hmm. But, uh, for the beginning, I mean, I literally, I would just, he would be bronking me off and I'd be like, it's okay. I still love you. Don't worry. It was really dorky. Did you get a lot of maybe unsolicited advice from people saying like how you should kind of work through those challenges? No, because oh, I don't love. think a single person <laughs> tried to offer me advice oh my because we were such a hot mess. Um, <laughs> so we just like everyone just avoided us because, you know, when you're wearing a cross country vest in the warm up ring, people know to avoid you <laughs> um, at a dressage show. Shoot. So, yeah, no, we no, no one really tried to help us, but mm-hmm. everyone was nice. And like, you know, what? it was really sweet was a lot of judges would like let me have a disobedience that was longer than allowed. Mm. And that's the only reason he was able to work through it is I just had to let him be bad until he was good. And then he right. would be fine. Right. So I'm always thankful to the judges that let me keep going. What advice or tips would you give someone who is dealing with a challenging horse? So if I had night all over again, I would definitely do it a little differently. I think that one of the most important things you can start with, with horses with behavioral issues is groundwork. So, um, there's a lot of different things out there in methods, but like the TRT method is wonderful, but it's all about, you have to teach them to get stressed out and then relax. You Mm -hmm. have to teach them how to deescalate. And I think that honestly, if you don't want to see a chiropractor twice a week for the rest of your life, like I do, it's better to start it on the ground. So you like start introducing stressful situations when you're on the ground and they can't hurt you as much. And I also like to really teach multiple layers of breaks that like things that need stop. So I um, do the Kathy Conley boop, and then Mm -hmm. I do the, and then Mm -hmm. I teach them, whoa. And all of those I do from the ground to teach horses just like to stop. So when they're bad and they're like in a very heightened situation, you can get them to calm down and at least stop bolting or bronking or rearing. So I do that from the ground. And then a lot of times what I'll do is I'll have a grounds person. And then I practice the braking systems, um, with someone from the ground. So you say, whoa, or you say, or you say, poop, and then someone get you halt them and you give them a sugar cube. Mm-hmm. So they really reinforces the brakes. And I think that that is a really good thing to do for anyone that has a horse with behavioral issues. Definitely. And then the next thing that you have to do most of the time is you have to not react when they're bad, which is hard. 
So you have to like, let them be upset and then not get after them. The more you can ignore the behaviors that are bad and then praise the behaviors that are good, Mm -hmm. the faster they work through their behavioral issues. Hmm. Yeah. That is so hard to do because I think sometimes we can get uh, sometimes the tendency can be to like, oh, quickly correct or, you know, try to like manhandle the situation sometimes. And then that just kind of for many horses will just make them like spiral even more. Exactly. And I mean, in this is for horses with like more extreme behavioral issues. Right. But like if you have a normal horse that's being a little naughty, I think sometimes you can be firm with them. I liken my training method to a hippie kindergarten teacher. So <laughs> I usually am just I let them be naughty and then they work through it and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Do you ever look at incredible horse show setups or a really well turned out horse at the horse show and they have the perfect scrim that's monogrammed and color coordinated or just stunning tack room drapes at the horse show? Well, the clothes horse has been manufacturing custom made horse blankets, tack room drapes, trunk covers since 1972. Every single order is taken and entered into a computer as a custom order. So all the details are spelled out according to the customer's specific requests and needs. Then each individual order is cut in chronological order, one piece at a time by hand. I can't think of hardly, I mean, really any businesses that still do that today. I think their attention to detail is absolutely incredible. So if you are looking for blankets, tack room stuff, or maybe just an incredible horse show setup, go check out The Clothes Horse. It's The Clothes Horse, C-L-O-T-H-E-S dot com. And learn a little bit about all the different products that they have and the services they offer. Again, that's theclotheshorse.com. You have always been super open about all of Knight's performances, even obviously the ones that don't go so well. What inspires you to maybe share the not so picture perfect moments in kind of a world where people and, and riders are kind of reluctant to share those kinds of things? Uh, yeah, I've always really thought it was important to share the ugly parts of training because the reality of life is it's not this curated image that everyone mm-hmm. portrays on Instagram and social media. It's, and I think that that selective view that you share with the world can be really isolating to people. Right. Because the reality is it's never perfect all the time. And so I always have tried to be really honest about the not perfect just so that maybe like even one person sees it and is like, Oh, that's nice that they're struggling too. Mm -hmm. But it's especially with horses with behavioral issues. I think the more that you try to gloss over the bad, the more you're going to stay in the bad, like you're not going to work through it in a productive way. If you're just kind of pretending it doesn't happen or glossing it over. Right. Yeah. And while you've had some incredible like moments of improvement with horses like Knight and, you know, other maybe problem horses in your program, a constant challenge can be like really defeating, like mentally, how were you able to be resilient enough to keep showing up and putting in the work? It's really hard. Like I literally have cried on my kitchen floor. Yeah. Um, many a time this, this Florida season after that first show, because we'd done all this work. We were so much better. He was like 26 in the country for I won the year before. And then we couldn't even go down the center line. I just like lay on my kitchen floor and cried hysterically. And it's really hard. 
And I will always love working with horses with behavioral issues, but I mean, like I have two young horses that are clean slates that are nice and it is mentally draining and it's tough, but ultimately it depends on the horse kind mm-hmm. of like if I knew that Knight could be great and I know that he still has greatness in him and he, he's so much better. He literally got my, my amateur student, her pre-St. George scores um, wow. for her silver level, silver medal uh, last weekend. And then one other show. So he's gotten so much better, but there's some horses that maybe you have to question if the payoff is worth it. Mm. And I've had to make that hard choice with people and horses. And I am, so like I work at the MSPCA, I volunteer at the MSPCA every week. And there's certain horses where, you know, you're, it's too dangerous and the reward won't be worth it, Mm. which is sad, but it's, if you believe in the horse, it, it kind of is a little bit easier to get through the really hard times. Definitely. Um, Speaking of the mental side of the sport, mental health and mental illness is something that is not talked about nearly enough. What are your thoughts and experiences on mental health and mental illness in the equestrian space? So I've been struggling with bipolar disorder since I was 12 years old. And I think that that's one of the reasons that I really always relate to these horses that have kind of mental Mm. baggage because it's, you know, I'm similar and it is really tough because we are starting to change the conversation around mental illness as a society, but bipolar disorder in general, isn't really as accepted. Mm. And I really have always been trying, been tried to be honest about my condition because if, people that are in a position that they're able to speak up about it, don't talk about it, then the stigma is never going to change. Right. So I always try to be honest about that because it's really hard, but the industry in general, I mean, it's definitely not the most forward thinking Mm -hmm. because if you think about what we tell riders, like, Oh, it's like, suck it up, get back on. Mm-hmm. Just do it anyways. And to some extent that works, but for nerves and anxiety, most of the time, if you ignore it and try to not think about it, it comes back and right. it doesn't go away. Like right. you, the only way you can really move through your feelings is to be in your feelings. Mm. And so I think that is kind of an isolating experience because our dialogue is that, you know, just ignore it, snap out of it. And that's so not what the solution is. Right. How do you personally navigate mental health alongside the pressures that you experience competing at the highest level? I mean, so I'm in therapy, which is important. And it's also like, I'm like very privileged and lucky to be able to afford therapy because yeah. this country, we have a mental health crisis. I mean, mm. there's a huge lack of psychiatrists and um, there's some States that it's, it's really, really bad. Like in Maine, most of their psychiatrists are retiring and there's a crisis with it. And most people can't afford therapy, which is so expensive. It's so expensive and it's heartbreaking. And so that I think is, I've been very lucky to be able to deal with that in my own life, to be able to be afforded to have the privilege of therapy. And Mm. so that really helps me. And I think anyone that is dealing with mental health, I mean, I think therapy is the best thing you can do for it. Um, But for my own like training, I always tell my students, like, I really hate the mindset, like you don't cry. 
I think that that is one of the most damaging things ever mm-hmm. because you're just denying your feelings. And that is like a huge thing around riding is like, you just suck it up and do it. And then these feelings get backlogged. So I always tell my students like, you know, feel your feelings, cry. It's fine. Don't mm-hmm. worry about it. It's a safe space. And I think that that allows you to kind of move through it. Cause I have a bunch of nervous amateurs and I really, I love dealing with that stuff. And, but it's in general, I mean, it's definitely harder. Like I wouldn't recommend anyone having bipolar disorder. It's definitely not like a great time. So I'm on like medication and, um, it is, this is my first year going to Wellington Yeah, and it was amazing, but it is like hard. Like yeah. I understand why there aren't a lot of bipolar athletes and Olympians. Mm. It's like, it's really tough, right? It, it's tough for everyone, but when your brain is like not super great, it's like an extra hurdle that is mm. really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm yeah. I think that your bravery and your strength to be able to be in this industry and work at such a high level while working with a mental illness is just so inspiring. Um, I have family members and I mean, that's the, that's the closest that I've experienced mental illness. And um, it does have such a, an interesting stigma around it. And I feel like a big part of that is that Oh, like, like that there's that they're like not as strong as anyone else, as, as maybe people who don't have a mental illness or they're, you know, not able to perform at the same level. And I mean, I feel like the amount of effort that you need to put in to your mental health to then be able to compete and thrive at an industry like this one that's so grueling and is nonstop, I just think is so incredible. Oh, thank you so much. That's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like everyone, if you are neurotypical, you probably have a family member or a friend that has mental illness and is struggling with it. Mm -hmm. And when you don't talk about it, you feel, I mean, mental illness in general, you feel isolated and alone. Mm. And when we don't talk about it, it makes you feel even more alone. And then it makes it even worse and you feel even worse. And it's, um, you are more reluctant to get help. Yeah. It's like and a spiral. Yeah, it is. It's totally like a spiral. So I always am happy to talk about it. Cause I, I have friends that are bipolar that don't, I'm the only one that knows mm-hmm. because they're afraid they're going to lose their job. Wow. And there's such a stigma around it and it's definitely getting better, but it, it does, it won't get better unless we keep talking about it. Exactly. Outside of all the work that you do with your riding and training, you're also working on an exciting new project with Boston Public Schools. So tell me a little bit about that project and where you are in the process and what's next. Oh, so this has been like a dream of mine for years. And um, Kathy's planning on helping me, which is exciting. We've tried to get it going with Dorchester, but we're now like in this very beginning of working with Boston Public Schools with it to get a program to get kids that live in the city to be able to come out and ride and to be able to experience horses and dealing with farm animals and everything like that. And it's still in like the very early stages of it because it's a lot of logistical hurdles, like the transportation, it's like $300 each time. Wow. So uh, we definitely want where I'm going to have to fundraise for it, but I'm really, I really am passionate about trying to bring dressage to not just those in the highest socioeconomic class, Mm -hmm. 
And it's because I think that working with horses is such a wonderful experience that I don't think it should be reserved for just those that are privileged enough to be able to afford them. Mm -hmm. And I think we've touched on several topics that can answer this question, but is there anything else that you are particularly passionate about that you feel like other people in the industry either don't talk about or maybe don't know enough about? So one thing that I would love to see is for dressage to become more widely accepted and adapted by other equestrian disciplines. Mm. And I think that there's a stereotype around dressage that it only, you only can be successful if you have like an expensive warm blood or you pay a lot of money for your horse. And especially when you get to FEI, like the only way to do it is if you have this exorbitantly expensive, nice horse. Right. When reality is dressage is so beneficial for every discipline and every breed. And I see it every week at the MSPCA, like, you know, you can make these horses that maybe have some issues, you can get them to be obedient and focused and submissive. And then I think that any breed can be successful, especially at the lower levels, but especially like off the track thoroughbreds, they're so versatile. I would mm. love, I love the thoroughbred incentive program because it gets them more coverage and more notice. Totally. But I mean, my junior took my little off the track thoroughbred, um, dragon to a show last weekend and got in the seventies. So they can be just as successful. And I, I would just love to see more off breeds and more people implementing and working with dressage. Definitely. And I think that, you know, having my background in hunter jumper, there's so much benefit to knowing the like lower level dressage and just lateral movements that really help keep a horse balanced and collection and lengthening that is such a foundation of what we do in you know our discipline and I kind of like what you were alluding to there's so many disciplines that would benefit from at least lower level dressage you know at the very least to really kind of get to know that understanding I also think it helps develop feel in the for the rider um, really knowing where the horse's body is underneath them that it's a really hard concept to teach so to, to be able to kind of feel that through lateral movements, I think is, um, super helpful for any discipline. Yes, totally. I mean, it's, it's so important and I just would love to see the stereotype of it being kind of untangible Mm -hmm. dispelled a little bit more. Definitely. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today, share a little bit about your life and some exciting things happening right now, but, um, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. It was so wonderful talking to you. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.